This is Lauren Straken with Chris Smith on the Culture Matters Podcast. Build your cultural competence. Listen to interesting stories. Learn about the cultural fails and how to avoid them. Get the global perspective here at Culture Matters on International Business. Your host, Chris Smith, has a plan. A plan for people who are looking for a solution. He makes you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences. Every episode, he interviews a prominent guest who will tell you his or her story and share international experiences, making you more cultural competent. And now, here's your host, Chris Smith. Hi there, my name is Chris Smith and you're listening to the Culture Matters Podcast. We are on episode number 137. Today's guest is again in a sequel, Lawrence Draken. Lawrence Draken published The Year of the Rabbit Dragon in November 2018, a medical mystery set in Beijing, China. The story wound around political intrigue, cover-ups, secret interrogations, but most of all the potential for scientists in a culture with drastically different ethics to use new technology like CRISPR and virology for nefarious means. Draken writes not just crime stories, but about current events, politics and the daily drama within China that is nearly impossible to understand from the outside. She lived with her husband in Beijing for nearly five years. So it's a sequel to number 136, which we recorded on April uh, 8th. And we talk more about how storytelling can help us understand a culture that is so different from Western culture. Let's get right to the interview. It's time for this week's guest at Culture Matters. Hey, Lawrence. Good to have Hi. you back. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Chris? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good as well. This is actually the, the sequel to the, the, the episode that was online, went online two weeks ago. And two weeks ago, we're recording now 21st of April. Uh, 2020 and we're in the midst of this corona crisis this worldwide lockdown everybody's bored out of their skull including me <laughs> you're the only one who seems to be not bored out of her skull so can you, can you tell us a little bit about about what you do um and um who you are where are you and your cultural frame of reference please Sure. Um, I'm not bored because I've got so much to do and I work from home to start with. So my general routine is pretty typical, but there's just more people in the house now. So more busy. Um, but I'm a writer. I'm um, published a couple of books. Um, I specifically fiction thriller is my specialty, but I'm also American. Um, I've been living in Munich for the last five years. But before that, we were in Beijing, China for almost five years as well. And yeah, my frame of reference is largely American, but it's been more than almost 10 years since I was in the U.S. And I feel like that changes it, the, the longer you're away. It changes a little bit what your perspective is mm -hmm. well, significantly. Mm -hmm. So I'm definitely American at heart and I have some of those ideas in my base. But yeah. <laughs> okay. It's uh, it's interesting because we we uh, at least in the West many people they they think that uh, we are very very much alike uh, or or at least a lot of overlap or similarity and um, I'm watching a program right now um, it's on Dutch TV it's a Dutch interviewer uh -huh. and the program is called um, God Jesus and Trump <laughs> and this this interviewer he goes he goes to the Bible Belt in the United States and uh -huh. he's he's Christian himself as well. 
and okay. he's a, he's a TV present, presenter as well for the the Christian uh, network that we have here. Right. And he's trying to understand um, why people would, why Americans vote for Trump, for instance, uh-huh. um, which is, and it's an interesting uh, take. He's not there <laughs> to advise and he's not there to, um, to judge, but it just sure. makes you think that actually we're not really that similar. <laughs> so, <clears throat> Well, I mean, you can take any extreme of any country and not draw parallels. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's true. That's true. That's true. <laughs> All right. Last time we um, two weeks ago we talked about. Um, I got my note the notes with me uh, as well. Oh, okay. We, uh, we, yeah, we talked about talked about the Corona uh, crisis or uh, the COVID nineteen uh, virus. Uh, your experience with China. Now mm-hmm. the the take on this this conversation is going to be a little bit a little bit different because you you didn't want to specifically talk about your uh, the book that you uh, that you wrote, which is called the year the year. Of the rabbit dragon, my English is gone. And, um, uh, but then you had this idea to use fiction to understand a culture that is so different from ours, the Chinese culture in this case, uh-huh. and how fiction as a tool can help you navigate if you want uh, in, in a new new world. Can you just elaborate a little bit on your ideas here? Yeah, no, I just I wasn't when i when i was in my when i was in school and preparing for a career and getting ready to go out into the big wide world as an independent person i wasn't really planning to be a writer that was never in my that was never my plan mm-hmm. or direction i was going for education but when i got to china i realized that there are times when you can discuss something with somebody or you can have interactions with them but it's really hard to under, understand ideas as purely philosophical ideas. There's very few people who are good at going directly to the philosophical, scientific, very objective Mm -hmm. truth of the world. But the way that humans mostly understand things, even scientists and even philosophers, you understand things from story. And that's why you read any science book and or any philosophy book. And inevitably, there will be lots of examples that are mostly small story snippets. And I really think that humans are designed or have evolved or whatever you want to say to to understand their life through story. Mm-hmm. And when you go to someplace like China that's so different, you can say something like the culture is based on Confucian ideas of the group versus the Western idea of the individual being supreme supreme in the culture in the, mm-hmm. as the as the form. But that doesn't necessarily mean anything. And when you start to hear the stories about people and and how people act, then you start to understand the stories of of what that culture means and what that means as an idea. Mm. And I feel like as people, it's much easier for us to, to understand stories. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, as as a kid, we like stories, and we and and I guess as adults as well. Therefore, there's so so much fiction. Of course, you you mentioned that China was different, but with that, you mean China is different from uh, Western culture. Correct. Well, I mean, yeah. So, I mean, of course, we're you and I both on the Western. I mean, we're speaking English in the mm-hmm. Western hemisphere and Western educated. And so, yeah, I mean, I mean, the China is very different from the Western mindset um, than than what what most of us have grown up with. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, you said you lived in China for five years. Um, mm-hmm. You started writing accidentally. Uh, I guess a lot of people end up in their job accidentally. I've always. <laughs> always wondered. I mean, I don't think there are people that wake up one day and say, "I'm going to be a professional undertaker." With all respect for 
for you know for, for sure whatever profession. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, usually usually people end up in a in a in a job as well. Why why writing? And um, you said it was not the plan. And um, why not write? I mean, if you want to describe Chinese culture, why not describe it as it is? And why use fiction for that? Yeah. Well, I, when I was when I was growing up, my mom used to be. My mom is a fantastic storyteller from like the oral tradition of what I guess most of human culture has had stories as an oral tradition. And she used to tell us the most amazing stories growing up about her childhood and the people she used to know in her small town and things that used to happen to her. And she would just have you at the edge of your seat. And some of the stories she'd tell you would listen to five or six times. Like the story of how she met my dad is just a brilliant story that she is amazing the way that she tells a story. And so I, didn't grow up writing stories perhaps, but really connected with the traditional story structure of storytelling as an art. And when I got to China, I felt like there was so much that I was experiencing there that you, you can't, you can't understand it from just the news stories. You, 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 China's in the news often enough, but you don't understand what the mindset is until you've interacted with the people. And when I started working there and, and having some of these experiences that make you start, start to understand like the mindset and how the people work and mm-hmm. what they're struggling with as a, as a culture, mm-hmm. you realize that there's so much that you'd like to share with other people and that you'd like to be able to give back to you, you know, your family at home or to people that you talk to. And so I started like as every expat who's ever gone abroad, mm-hmm, <laughs> I, started, mm-hmm. I started a blog, but <laughs> I, it's really, I don't know, for me, it felt like everyone has done an, a travel overseas blog and it was something you start, but then you don't necessarily follow through on. And I don't mean to like diss blogging. Of course, that's an excellent form if, if you're good at it, yeah. but I, but I started to feel like there there was a better way to share some of these ideas. Mm-hmm. And then I my, my first son was born in China. And when I was on maternity leave there, um, I had a little bit of extra time. And I started, a, an idea for a story came to me. And I felt like that is maybe like an actual structured story is maybe more um, instructive, not instructive, but more revealing Mm-hmm. As you follow certain characters and and how they deal with the drama of life there is more revealing. And maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm better at writing a book than I am writing <laughs> disjointed blogs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Could could be, of course. I was thinking um, uh, you were talking about structure of of stories. Mm-hmm. Um, are, are structures different in different themes? In other words, is a, a, a romance story, is that different from a thriller? Yeah. Uh, and, and is it, is, do you have to do the storytelling different in, say, Western culture versus Asian or in this case, Chinese culture? Well, I mean, if the, to answer the last question first, of course, I'm sure that I think there are overlying themes that every story, if you're human, has to have. Uh-huh. But but I'm writing, of course, to Western audiences, and so I'm writing with Western ideas of story form and stuff. So and I can't really, I can't, I don't have much research in Chinese storytelling. Hmm. But but as far as the first question, absolutely. And I think this is, I've I've had other people ask me why I went with the thriller um, mm-hmm. murder mystery genre when I started writing the story. If because if I wanted to just share the story of China, then why not go with like literary uh, 
literary fiction and you exactly. know do the Amy, the Amy Tan sort of thing mm-hmm. where you have character driven and and I think for sure when you're in China the stories at least for me the stories that came to me are thriller mystery sort of stories for a spe- and I think that's for a specific reason because when you're there you feel like there are so many things that are opaque to the western outside person Mm-hmm. and that are opaque even to a Chinese person that you simply don't understand. Like, you know that things are happening. Like, for instance, you know that there are undocumented prisons or undocumented um, detention facilities. There in, in, the in China, you're talking in about. China, in China. Yeah. There are, there's plenty of discussion about There's plenty of, like, m- rumors about these mm-hmm. topics. There's mm-hmm. plenty of myths that circulate the expat community about people who have disappeared. <laughs> And, and you know that most of it is myth, but there's always a moment of like truth to something that you feel like, well, we don't really know what would happen if you did this thing. So if you if you crossed somehow the wrong party member or got in trouble with the police and made the wrong guy angry, you don't really know what would happen. And the court system is not quite so obvious for a Western or for a Chinese person and how the government works is really quite opaque. We don't, I mean, there's a couple, there's a book that I recommended, I think last time, that's really good at, at explaining how the government works, but even things as basic as how the party secretary is elected every 10 years, mm-hmm. that there is no documentation, even in Chinese, as far as I know, there's no documentation about how the president is elected mm-hmm. or how the Politburo is decided and no one knows how those how these ideas are are made and so there's a lot about this lifestyle where things are done behind closed doors or at a level that you're not privy to that lends itself to a thriller (laughs) (laughs) where you don't know what's going on always Uh is there is there a lot of um have you experienced any of these things yourself uh i mean (laughs) <laughs> a rumor race day is a rumor, right? And if you prove it, it's no longer a rumor anymore. But anything that that comes close, and in other words, that is part of your own experience, and that you uh, could have, you you could have, you could have, you weaved it into your story. Well, there, I'm, perhaps it's because I'm not very creative that I've, much of my story is woven from personal experience. But the actual like torture scene or the you know the right. locked up in an undocumented prison that never happened to me thank goodness <laughs> um <laughs> but there are stories like for instance there was a there was a story when i was living there about i i want to say that he was finnish or norwegian there was a there was a human rights lawyer who had gone to china to help train chinese lawyers on how to fight human rights cases and how to bring those to court and how to be most effective in Chinese, the court, Chinese court system. So taking some Western ideas about human rights defense and then training local lawyers. Um, And he got involved with a topic and I'm not going to say the specifics because I would be remembering it from a faulty memory, but he got involved with something that made a lot of people really angry and he and his girlfriend were both taken to an undocumented facility and he was not personally tortured, but he listened to his girlfriend be tortured in the cell next to him. Wow. And really like some some pretty like hairy things going on. And then eventually he's deported and is forced to leave China. And we don't really know what happens to like some of these, like the girlfriend or like what happens with the story in a big picture view. So, I mean, there's, there's kinds of stories like this, or there's another, I mean, completely, there was a 
the mythology. There's a there's a myth when I was there that was circulating some of the community about one of the um, CFOs, um, financial the chief financial officer of one of the large expat international companies, who had stumbled onto some bribery and some misconduct, and he instead of shoveling it under the rug like you're supposed to or like he was told to do, he brought it to the forefront and shared some got got some people in trouble and one night he disappeared and no one knows what happened to him and that is a myth because i have nothing to support that story i have no idea if that really happened but these kinds of things like they circulate the community and then you start to feel like well what if like what where do you draw the line where would i draw the line and this is what i think is so interesting and so important about story as an idea is you read these stories, you share these stories, like bigger picture, like epic stories, not this like mythology, but like you should share these stories because you have to think about what is it, what would I do if I were in this sort of situation and how would I deal with that situation? And, and what would happen if, you know, my husband disappeared in the middle of the night, what would you do? What would you plan? How mm-hmm. would you deal with that? Who would you talk to? Who would you call? I mean, I think that this is why, I mean, this is why story is important to humans as a species so that we can understand and prepare for things before we actually have to live them out ourselves, or we can avoid situations before we have to live them our- ourselves. And yeah, I mean, <laughs> how much, how, how much, uh, two questions actually. Um, uh, how far do you have to go to get really, how far do you have to go to get in trouble uh, in, in China? <laughs> I mean, can you, give, can you give us some examples that you, I mean, no, no myths, but real reality. And um, uh, to what extent do you use that or in your book or do you actually exaggerate in your book so that it's really obvious that this uh, this person crossed the line? Yeah, that's a really hard question to answer. I think um, I... Let, 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 re, let me rephrase the, the first question. In comparison yeah. to, for instance, in the United States or in Germany where you are right now, what could yeah. you do in Germany um, which... Which would be well, relatively okay, uh, but in China would definitely have has uh, have crossed the line. Well, I mean, like you can cross lines fairly quickly in China if you want to. I mean, if you start bringing up topics that are verboten, so if you start, you know, discussing topics around the Falun Gong, the that religious sect that was um, developed in the 1990s, or if you want to start making critical statements about Xinjiang Province and the Uyghur people in the West who are under what would what we would call house arrest or in re-education camps. Mm-hmm. I mean, right now, I think there was an article the end of last year that finally came out in the West that there's at least about a million Uyghur people that are in re-education camps, what we would call mm-hmm. re-education camps. And we all know what that means, but like, but that are being det- detained for no other reason except that they are threats to the Han ruling party sees them as threats to the, to the status quo. Mm. And so if you start to talk about these topics, if you start to bring these up or, or be critical of this, you already, you immediately, I mean, all of these topics are already censored heavily. All these topics are not allowed to be in public media and public sphere. Mm-hmm. You, you start talking about them in your, um, what we, the, the equivalent of, um, WhatsApp, like the WeChat there, right. like they'll already be censored immediately. And if, if as a foreigner, I think very quickly you could find yourself like being your visa detained and being sent home. Um, so 
I don't, I think you might, you'd probably be sent home before you got into some serious trouble about these things because they don't, they have what we would Deport, call deported, you mean, zero right? tolerance. Yeah. De- you mean deported um, and, and, and your examples actually are talking about expats or no, non Chinese. Yeah. And as far as Chinese, they can take an even a much quicker because they don't have like, there's no one to hold them accountable. So there's no, I mean, the, the Chinese do not see like the human rights courts of, the UN, they don't recognize these concepts because this is a Western idea. The Chinese feel is a Western idea imposed on the rest of the world. And so they don't necessarily, they get really frustrated when, for instance, um, a couple of years ago, a Chinese um, dissident won the Nobel Peace Prize. Mm-hmm. And China went crazy about mm-hmm. that because it's it's seen to them as a very political statement, which you have to be honest, it is sort of a political statement oh, yeah. that, one of, that we give their dissidents a Nobel Peace Prize, mm-hmm. and you're very much choosing sides as an outsider when we when that happened, and they don't recognize the same human rights laws that we have in the West, and so for their own citizens, they don't have to, they don't play along by the same rules, and so very quickly, you can get in trouble. Uh, I, I honestly, I mean, part of the part of the agreement in China between the government and its citizens is especially since the 80s, when it started opening up to Western, I mean, to not Western, but when it started opening up to a market society where they allowed the market to form and where Western companies could start investing and Mm -hmm. people could start opening shops and having businesses and making normal style market money. One of the agreements is basically if you can have, you can become wealthy, you can enter into this part of society mm-hmm. at the agreement that you play by the rules and you don't question the authority and you don't you don't raise your head too high above right. what we expect. And so if you start to question those like fundamental principles, then you lose the freedoms that you gave away when you wanted to participate in the rest of society. And I it's uh, I don't I, honestly. I don't think you have to do too much if you want to start getting in trouble in China. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, yeah, it's it's it, it, it. I've been to China a couple of times, and and like I said in the first episode that we recorded, that uh, being in in Beijing, uh, there are millions and millions of people, and I never felt so alone in 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 right? in, in one of these enormous cities. Because right. it's it's really hard to com- communicate with people, and yeah. um, at one moment, a couple of moments, this happened when I was uh, walking around in, in the city, um, and just I got lost eventually, and I made it to the uh, the forbidden city where mm-hmm. I could go in, which is actually uh, it's a one way uh, stream of people, so to speak. Right. You, you enter one side and you you exit the other side. Exactly. And, and during my walk uh, on that um, on the premises, if you want. I was accompanied by our two ladies, two women came to me and they asked me if I, if I spoke English and yes, I do. And I always think, Oh my God, they're spies. Uh, they're, they're checking, they're checking on me. I'm not neurotic by nature, but it is, I don't know, careful at least. And so, and then they asked, okay, um, uh, do you want to go for a drink uh, with us? And get suspicious. Like, I mean, are these with all respect are, are, what do they want from me? Could they, it could, could be anything. Right. Um, and then I, and I, I assessed the situation and I said, okay, well, and then if I think it's okay, I'll go ahead with it because it, it will give me stories as well, but it also is an experience. Um, so what we did is we went to a, 
uh, it's like a coffee shop if you want. And we just like had tea, house? just a, a, a simple, tea house. Yes, that's it. And, there more, and I decided already if we're, if we're going, we're going somewhere where there should be more people. I'm not going to go with these girls, women, um, and just, and just be uh, with the three of us. That's not what I'm going to do. Did I, <laughs> did I risk something doing this? I don't, the thing is, I don't think you ever risk yourself as physical harm. I don't, I, the one thing about Beijing is it is an incredibly safe city. So mm -hmm. there is almost no physical danger ever that you might have in China. Okay. And I don't, I, but there is, this is kind of the traditional um, tourist trap thing where they, they approach you at the Forbidden City, for instance, and then invite you to the tea house mm -hmm. and then you get way overcharged. So you're probably like, if anything, it might have been a monetary scam. If it is, if there was something amiss, mm -hmm. so you might get way overcharged, or you might get like invited to pay more than you should for a tea. But as long as you stay like in public places and stuff, I, I, I mean, it's the same thing. Like you might get, you might get your wallet lifted, but it's not like going to be a physical danger. And it's not like a spy sort of thing, but right. it's definitely you know the tourists take advantage of the tourist sort of possibility. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I think yeah. I, I think in the end it was okay. I don't think I, I paid. If I paid too much, it wasn't too much. Much. No, it was. It was okay. You could handle it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. 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 You. So you we had um, the same experience. Say again. I had the same experience at least once. Ah. Okay. 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 Well. At least I. I, I couldn't. I. I couldn't square it really. Um, no. You mentioned yeah, but, something about about uh, if you stick to the rules in China and you do what the authorities tell you, then you're pretty much okay and you're and you're safe. And we talked about this uh, last time as well to some extent. Uh, liberty versus freedom, how how do they relate to each other? Liberty and 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 freedom. And this I think is quite interesting because in the Chinese mindset the individuality that we have in the West where the individual has absolute freedom and the government is there to protect the freedom of the individual. And, and in the West, in China, the freedom is granted to you by the group and the reverse of this, where the Chinese look at the West and they think you guys are just a bunch of chaotic dissidents. And how can you have be so selfish as to not play by the rules and be concerned about the group and be concerned about like the welfare of, the system. Mm -hmm. And this is where like the Chinese government specifically has the idea. If people are threatening the stability of the group, then you lose your liberty because your liberty is granted to you by the group. And so if people are, for instance, um, protesting against treatment of some of these Western minorities, mm -hmm. then we have the rights to put them in prison because they're destabilizing this, the peace of the public harmony. They're destabilizing yeah public harmony and but then they look at they look at us and think you guys are just crazy risking everything for your individual freedom i mean in, along the lines of like the COVID 19 thing if in the it's very common in china that they look at us and they think why do you guys not all wear masks everywhere like why would you yeah. why would you risk that for the rest of the group yeah. your individual freedom to not wear a mask sure but but you're risking the safety of the entire group by not like enforcing the rule that everybody wear a mask and everybody follow exactly the same rules. Whereas we think, no, you have the individual rights, but the group comes at not second to it, but the, the freedom of the group is granted by the individual liberty. Yeah. Mm. But I think something, something else that we didn't really talk about last time. And I think sometimes gets forgotten mm -hmm. is that, 
these ideas are not something that Mao brought with him with communism, which I think is often attributed to communism because it's very much the group, the group functioning as a whole instead of the Western libertarians. But it's something that they've been, that they've had as a mindset since mindset since mm -hmm. Confucius. So since 2,500 years ago, they've been they've been structuring their society on the idea of the group being the supreme important set over the individual. And so I think when communism came to China in 1949, when the communists took over Beijing and ousted the nationalists, mm -hmm. this was something that fits. And, I, and I'm making a little bit of a personal statement, but it, to me, it fits very much with the mindset that was already there where the group and the society and and the larger family, for instance, the family unit, unit is more important than individuals that are made up in that group. And so it's this mindset that we're not dealing with communism here as much as we're dealing with a very different idea that's thousands of years old. Right. And that, yeah. So in other words, what you're saying is that the Communist Party since the, the 50s um, did not have, did not, create this influence this group thinking this group this group thinking yeah. uh, or in other words this collectivism is has been something that or is something that has been around for like forever yeah well, yeah and i think i mean i can't point to like a scholar that has said this but but in my opinion it's very much something that communism used to that it was a, it was a fruitful ground for communism to flourish because it was an idea that was already in the mindset of the people there, exactly. And so I'm not sure that it completely changed the mindset. And I'm sure, and there are for sure things that come with communism that are separate than ancestral like loyalty. But but there are for sure ideas in communism that work quite well in this in this mindset because you're already in this in the idea where the individual is not the supreme person. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Is there, is there anything particular that you can indicate that the Communist Party did change over the last 70 years? <laughs> why is that why is that funny? <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, I'm it's it's kind of it's uh, it's such a broad question. I know, um, I know, but it, no, okay, I know. but if you can limit it to maybe one or two two points. Like they have any, of course, I mean, they opened up the market and they make, made it a, a, uh, at least a market economy, um, in a, in a structured, well, in a Chinese way. That, that is clear. Well, okay. So, I mean, so I, when I, I just recently listened to a, to a history talk about, um, about when the Communist Party came to China mm -hmm. and they were talking about how when the, when the party marched through Tiananmen Square and I mean, Chang'an Avenue, not, but also Tiananmen Square, but when the, when the party marched through, down Tiananmen Avenue, mm -hmm. the people felt like they were being liberated. And so for a lot, for a few years, China had been in the civil war between the nationalists and the communist party. Mm -hmm. And eventually the communist party won and Mao came and captured Beijing and liberated it. And the people felt like they were actually being liberated from, from the in the lack of freedom that they had in the old system. So, I mean, before in 1900, you'd had, the the emperor of china and the emperor has all the power and the individual has nothing like he's the, everyone is at the behest right. and the will of the emperor and then there was civil war and there's a fight between communism and nationalism and then and the the people in beijing really felt like we're being liberated now because now every single individual has the same rights under communism and so in theory like the widow who used to be 
who whose husband had deserted her like in the old system she would be starving to death because she has no powers anymore she has no way to earn a living she has no like individual rights mm-hmm. and now communism she has the same exact rights as the person next up next to her down the street everyone everyone is equal under the law in theory mm-hmm. and but then after a couple of years it turns out like oh it's the same 1984 animal farm everyone is equal but some people are more equal right. <laughs> and, yeah. and then the same the same woman that whose husband had left because he'd actually been in the nationalists um he'd been a uh, officer in the nationalist army mm-hmm. um she was then vilified because her her links were to these were to the other side or um anyone who'd had an education or anyone who'd had a family skill so like uh, like like calligraphy or some some specialized skill or yeah. anyone who'd been in the government everyone anyone who has education or university or Anything is then vilified and treated as bourgeoisie, and and now we're all equal. But everyone who had any power before is now the enemy, and they have zero power now. And then you you go to a time where there's you've wiped out almost the entire history of the culture, and and so it's kind of hard to say like what is what is the effect of the Communist Party on on China because mm-hmm. it's it's you've taken out the entire history and education and ruling class and, and intelligentsia of, of everything and started almost at completely square square one. And now the effect of the communist party of China is that it's a whole, it's a country without a history now. And, and to the, I mean, even to this day, they still, they still don't discuss like what in history books, they still don't talk about what, what happened at Tiananmen square in 1989. And and that's something that's you know for Westerners how can you how can you be so selective about what your history is or what doesn't exist or what your opinions are and yet that is to me this this the structure of having a zero tolerance policy on dis- dissension. Right. Okay. Well, that makes good sense. Nice explanation like that as well. Um, you you wrote your book in uh, uh, the year of the rabbit dragon, which goes uh, which is uh, the story about a virus that spreads through China, right? Uh, and you you wrote this in in twenty eighteen, correct? Well, I published in twenty eighteen. All right, okay, fair enough. Which uh, is, was that clairvoyant? Was that how? Where, where did you get this? Did you have this magic ball that you that you when and when is the next uh, epidemic coming, please? <laughs> Man, I don't know, and I hope I don't write that one. <laughs> that would be oh, depressing. Um, I, where did I come up with the idea? Or mm-hmm. the thing is, when I when I started writing the book, um, it was in I started writing it in 2014, um, and I had read a couple of articles about the CRISPR technology that had started, mm-hmm. and, and it's at that time it wasn't really in the public sphere. It wasn't something that most people were aware of, but there were a couple of fringe articles that were starting to bubble up about this brand new idea about how to edit genes and how to control the human genome. And as a somewhat creative person, that of course makes you wonder, how could this go to the nasty? And what, right. How could this be like abused? And I, I think everyone, everyone who has looked at all about CRISPR gene editing has asked the question, how can this be abused? And how could it be used for malicious intent with malicious intent? Correct. Yeah. Um, 
And so I started thinking about that. And when you're living in China, as I already said, there's there's already this like dark thriller aura around life. And then you start applying that to ideas about how the government handles things, what what extremes would the government go to to retain power and control of the people. And you uh, living there, you sort. I definitely felt like there was a very fine line, not a very fine line. There's not a fine line to me about uh-huh. what they would be willing to do to preserve the stability of the government and control. Mm-hmm. And so then if you take something like gene editing and try and think up malicious ideas about how that could be used, you can very easily come up with a story. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. in my particular one, I used a virus to spread to spread some some technology um, between the between the population because a virus is such a good tool for spreading spreading illness, obviously. Yeah. And then, but I think maybe it was because I didn't have the vision to go global, or maybe it was because I wanted to write a story about China, not about the world. <laughs> My story stays very much inside of China and is very much contained. I I don't know that I could have predicted what has happened with 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 COVID nineteen. I'm I don't know if anyone. I mean, I think lots of people have said that a pandemic was in the cards. It was just a question of when that would happen. So yeah. I'm not. I'm sure lots of people have written, you know, pandemic mysteries that are global. But I don't know. It's hard to imagine what we've been going through. And this is only for a really bad flu virus. Can you imagine if it was something like actually deadly, like, like Mm -hmm. 50% deadly, what would, what would happen? I, that'd be a harder book to write. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. That's true. Um, is your book published in China as well? (laughs) No. And and could could it be? No. It could not be. They would not be. Yeah. it, It picks all the keywords of, that you're not allowed to talk about and puts it into one book. So every single, I think it, mm-hmm. it was not the design. I did not plan it this way, but I think every single keyword that you're absolutely forbidden from discussing is, is in that book. And so it will never get published in China. Um, in order to publish a book in China, you have to go through censorship and heavy censor um, boards. Right. And so yeah, yeah. nothing that's published there is, is not approved. And this right, is right. definitely not. I mean, and, but that's, and I think this is something, it's not just the ideas or the opinions that you put in the book, because I tried really hard not to put outright opinions or mm-hmm. judgments, but to just bring up ideas or to bring up the topics themselves. Mm-hmm. And even that is not allowed. So you're not, you're not allowed to just bring up the topics in themselves. Mm-hmm. And that is something that I think in the West is completely foreign that we're yeah, not yeah, even allowed to talk about something. Indeed, that would be weird. Uh, does that does this uh, the fact that you wrote this book um, uh, would this jeopardize your uh, possible entry to into China again? Uh <laughs> Or have I given you an idea? No. <laughs> no, you didn't come up with the idea. No, <laughs> but um, 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 I think if my book got more popular, it might jeopardize my ability to get a visa. Um, the Chinese are already super sensitive about um, uh, journalists and people mm-hmm. who are writing anyway. So to have somebody who's already written some of these topics to start with, I think would definitely jeopardizes my ability to get a visa again. Right. 
Okay. So, but I haven't actually been to China since I published the book. So mm -hmm. we, we should test it out sometime. <laughs> <laughs> if um, I'm, uh, this is one of the, one of the last questions, uh, Lawrence, because we um, we're again 37 minutes in in, in recording, <laughs> which uh, and I enjoyed the chat as well, of course. Um, so uh, last week we talked we talked we talked about some real specifics of this lockdown uh, and how this actually uh, was different in China and in in the Western world, and you you did touch on it already. Now there's a good chance that if if stuff opens up again, that we might get a second wave potentially, or just suppose we might get a second wave. Do you think? Do you do you think China would take again very extreme measures, even maybe even more? And how much? To what extent do you think we 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 could follow or could what what we could copy from them? I think honestly, there are measures that have happened in China that are not possible to do in the West, and I think. For instance, the in China, on on one hand, things are not, and this is how do you say? In one hand, things are much further ahead technology-wise in China than they mm -hmm. are in the West. So, for instance, if I go out to a restaurant here, I still have to make sure that I have cash in my pocket because yeah. I'm not necessarily sure that they're going to take a credit True. card, which to me is completely flabber flabbergasting, mm -hmm. flabbergasts me every single time that happens because. Germany in specific is so technology driven and so mm -hmm. far ahead in engineering. And yet we are not sure that we can use a credit card and when we buy food, yeah. but in China, you don't, there is no cash anymore. You all use apps to pay for everything. You, you don't ever even use a credit card and you have beggars on the street that have QR codes that you can scan to give them money. Like it's just absurd. The amount of technology that they have built into their everyday life to start with mm -hmm. in many ways, much more than we do. Mm -hmm. And the delivery system and the parcel system is so much more developed in in like in a way that we don't have here. So if everybody had to rely on grocery delivery and food delivery and 100% like no shopping at all, we would not we would have a really hard time in the West because yeah. we simply don't have the infrastructure at that same level. Whereas in China, they've been doing that already for a few years now. And so, like, it's just it's just continuing on to this stretch that it already is. I mean, one of the parcel delivery systems here in Germany has just been completely overwhelmed in just what we've going over the last couple of weeks. And I won't name names, but but I've had packages that have been waiting for two weeks, which is completely like way longer than you're used to in a normal circumstances. But we're just we're struggling with just a what I would call a fairly light lockdown compared to what it could be. Absolutely. absolutely. And we just, the, the system is just so much more developed already in China. So on these levels, I'm not sure that we could lock down harder than we already have. And, but, um, yeah, what did, was there something else in the question? No, 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 this is <laughs> indeed it's, it's, it is like this. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about, I'm, I'm, of course, I mean, you're experiencing the same thing as well. And we're all experiencing the same thing. We want to go places that we can't or we shouldn't. Um, and again, so, and, and, uh, again, something that is, that is relatively easy in China. You just, you're just being told that you're not going and that's it. Yeah. And I'm not sure how much, I mean, the thing is about the lockdown, you have to, I mean, in the West, the lockdown requires the group to understand as a whole that everyone should be doing this. So you have to convince a whole group that they should be doing this and that it's important and necessary because we don't have the police force yeah. that, that in order to make sure to enforce it. Like if everybody decided 
this is stupid and we don't agree with it and everyone went out, like, what would you do? Nothing. There's not the police no. force to enforce exactly. it. And you, you're not allowed to use the military on home soil. So it's not like they're going to pull out the German Bundeswehr and, mm-hmm. and start, you know, I mean, and, and people would really go nuts if you started bringing in the military. And that would like that would cause revolution. So whereas in China, you don't have the same, you have a much larger police force to start with, and you have a much heavier surveillance system to start with, and you don't have the same like limitations about the army to start with. And so a lot of these things, the enforcement thing is also completely different. Whereas, I mean, of course, you still have to convince the citizens that they are going to do this. But I mean, the the speed at which they have been able to to create some of these things. So the app that they've keep talking about in the West, in Germany and the US, they keep talking about like, are we going to do a tracking app for everyone? Yeah. And in China, they have that. And there's no question. You you do it. And you're just told to do it. And you scan your QR code everywhere you go. And everywhere you step foot, you're, you're tracked. And every, I mean, I was talking to a friend and he was saying that one of his um, colleagues at work had been driving on out to the countryside. They mm-hmm. had gone out of the car. They'd just gone for a drive. But they had crossed over into Hubei province across, you know, 50 kilometers outside the city city they crossed outside and then come back they had never gone out of the car they've never left their vehicle mm-hmm. they came back and then they were informed that evening by the local police that they were on two-week quarantine now because they had left the jurisdiction wow. it's just immediate like they just the, the amount of tracking that they've already pulled out is just immediate whereas how could you convince would you be able to convince Dutch people? I'm not sure if you can convince no. Germans that they absolutely have to have a tracking app. I, and that's, I mean, people have gone crazy about the GDPR topic. <laughs> and this is how much heavier than that? No, so, no, no. This one will not work in the Netherlands. There's a saying that you you can tell a Dutch, but you can't tell a much. <laughs> and that, that really works 100% for the Dutch as well. Yeah, um, I suspect. <laughs> last, last question, Lawrence. How much of you uh, can I, can I uh, get back in the book? Can I see how much of me? Yeah. How, um, how how well will I know you if I read the book? I tried really hard not to write a book about Lawrence. So I really didn't I mean my main protagonist is a man and I think when I when I'm thinking back about that I think it's because I didn't want to write Lawrence goes to Beijing. I wanted to write a separate character, but mm-hmm. of course there there is there are discussions, there are ideas and stuff that I that reflect me of course. I think I think it's really hard to say what you would get out of me but i i don't know the thing is it's it's tricky and this is what was really exciting when i was writing my first book is you start to realize these ideas these characters these these situations are coming from your own head and you're writing them down and you have a lead character say nathan who's the lead and you've created this person and you've put him into situations and of course you're solving the problems for him because he's not inanimate in like Um, autonomous individual he's just somebody in your own head Mm -hmm. but as you start to move into the story as you get to know this character more you as the writer loses you lose control of the character and he has he is limited to do only the things that he could do and i think it's interesting because he's a he's a person from my own mind but he is very much somebody else and that's sort of like Mm -hmm. exciting when you start to realize like he's not even purely in my head anymore because he's his own he has his own way of solving problems mm-hmm. and he has his own way of dealing with the world and so I, at least when i started writing i was blown away by how the freedom lib- liberty individuality 
topic comes up with is is how these how these things materialize into separate forms. Uh, is that too weird? <laughs> no, 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 no. I guess it's indeed the, the maybe the mind of a writer who writes thrillers um, about viruses starting in China. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. I'm, of course, you would you would get to me a lot more, but um, there's a limit. I think there's definitely a limit. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, that's cool then. Well, then then we just have to meet in person uh, one day. Absolutely. Then and and let's solve that problem like that. Um, <laughs> Last episode, I did ask you already about three tips to become more culturally competent. Um, uh, so I just want to uh, I want to refer back to those. And uh, but I would like to ask you how people could get in touch with you. Um, for sure, you can um, go to my website um, lhdraken.com um, or my Instagram at lhdraken or Facebook or Twitter. All of these typical platforms I'm on, um, and I'd love to hear from people. Um, and yeah, um, I think that covers it mostly. <laughs> Good. All right. Excellent. That'll be in the show notes as well. Um, thank you again for coming back. And, it was really uh, fun. I hope, I hope you, you, you were able to say everything that was on your mind, um, uh, <laughs> including your character, your, your alter ego, uh, all the stuff that you didn't say that you, or forgot to say last time. <laughs> well, definitely more of it. <laughs> okay, cool. All right, well, thanks so much. much. Stay safe, stay healthy, and uh, I'm I'm pretty sure we'll talk to each other in the future. Absolutely, I look forward to it. Bye. See you later. All right, Lawrence, again, a a joy to talk to you as well. If you have not subscribed to this podcast, uh, I'm sure you can and you will. It's an excellent idea. Uh, because it'll, it'll get you more access to more podcasts of this kind as well. And if you're there, leave a review in iTunes as well. The music you hear in the background is from Bensound. Check them out at bensound.com. My name is Chris Smith. This was the Culture Matters Podcast, and I'll be back in two weeks' time. Take, take care. Bye. That's it for this episode. Culture Matters, making you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences. Your host, Chris Smith, has a plan. A plan for people who are looking for a solution.